created live on Fireside. Oh, fantastic. We are back. We are back. Thank you. You're back. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Chris. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for asking. Um, thank you for having me on the show. First off, I just, uh, I also have researched you both and, and you know, it's an, it's an honor to be, I, I'm really looking forward to this show. I think, uh, our three minds together are really going to create a lot of very valuable content for, uh, all the listeners. So anyway, just excited to be here. I also will have to say, uh, Chris, we used to have a thing like a military shower here in the States as well. We called that being a pioneer. So you're like on a wagon and he had a horse. <laughs> and you were, you were going across like through the, the mountains and the rivers and there was like uh, Indians attacking you and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But we haven't had that since. So um, we're glad to hear it's still alive and well in other parts of the world. But uh, yeah, we, uh, I feel for you, brother. That sounds tough. Well, uh, but the both of you will know the name Pete Rose, baseball player, told the story one time he was out in Vietnam going to, I don't know, doing a USO tour, I think. And Joe DiMaggio was with him. And Joe said, well, uh, now I need to go and take a shower, a military shower. And he said, we're out in the middle of the jungle. How the bloody hell are we going to take a shower? And uh, <clears throat> in Saigon, they uh, had like a bamboo shower, but it was out in the open but you would have to have someone pull a chain and a bucket would come over you in full flood. <laughs> so this was this was more a simplified version. And then, of course, Pete Rose made a very snide remark about uh, <clears throat> Joe DiMaggio that we'll not get into. But, Chris, let's dive into your story a little bit. I've been reading up about you, a very interesting press kit. You originally hail from Oregon, but you left up until the age uh, – where you lived up until the age of 15 – Detail us that journey quickly from going from Oregon to California, because I understand you had a Black Flag Ramones, um, Jim Jim Morrison sort of thing going on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of like really where the, the story starts. So I grew up in uh, in Oregon, um, in, in different cities around Oregon, and in a very religious home. My parents were missionaries. Uh, and so we would travel to Europe as well. Um, at 15, me and my father, we had a conversation that went something around the lines of, uh, you know, son, we've been very tolerant of your music and of your hair choices, but we're missionaries and we're going back to Europe. So, you know, you need to get rid of the Mohawk and you need to start being more part of the family. And <laughs> if that doesn't work for you, then, uh, then you're free to go out on your own. And so I said, okay, um, so I came and I came back and I said, well, you know, first off, I don't really, you know, we don't get along. I don't want to be a missionary. You know this. You're not supportive of anything that I do. I have more money in the bank than you do. And I don't feel loved and supported here. So why would I stay here? So, you know what? I'm going to hit the road. And so at 15, uh, you know, I left home. We went to my relative's house for Christmas. And um, basically what happens, you know, after we opened the presents or whatever, he gave me a one-way bus ticket back to Portland, which is somewhere my uh, – Relatives live, and uh, and that's kind of where this journey started. You know, once I sat down on that bus, and I realized, like, wow, here I'm, 15 years old, and I got a skateboard and a backpack, and I got I got nothing else going on. So, 
Um, you know, and that's kind of where this trauma and this codependency really started for me was that, you know, I instantly became very angry. It was me against the world. Uh, what am I going to do? You know, and then I, you know, I got back to Portland and, you know, and I thought, you know, oh, they'll come get me. And they didn't. And then I thought, oh, well, the people from the church, they'll check in on me. And they didn't. And then, you know, and my punk rock friends, right, the other kind of straggler kids around the community were like, hey, you can stay with us. Right. Like, come live with us. Like, you know, my parents don't care. Like, they're never home anyway or they're doing whatever. So you can come stay with us. And so that's kind of where I, I formed this whole community, you know, in, in the punk rock scene or that I like to talk about. Um, and that's really where I started to kind of deal with my trauma and codependency and things like that or where it started to kind of manifest. Right. Because now all of a sudden I have this subconscious view and I'm not worthy and nobody cares about me. So I'm going to have to prove it to everybody. And the only way to do that is to become a famous rock and roll star. So three months yeah. later, right, when I had a, uh, <laughs> right, that, that's what that's um, what we all do. I thought, you know, me, Nick, Six, like all of us, you know what I mean? Like we had the exact same story, right? But it Just was a wild versions, time but, to um, enter the punk rock scene in the 80s. I mean, there was the Circle Jerks, Black Flag. Well, of course, the only living alumni is Henry Rollins. And let's not talk about him because he just went completely off the deep end. But uh, give yeah, us a little I, bit of yeah, went a little okay. nuts. Sure, sure show, sure show. Well, yeah, I mean, yes. you know, it was crazy because I don't think people. Really, uh, Chris, I'm wondering. I said, I, yeah, I, I don't. I can't see you. Me? Oh, okay, oh, sorry. Did you turn on your video? Chris, one or two. The. The star of the show, you, My, Chris. I, I, okay. Um, I'm not sure. I see everybody. Do you see yourself? So I'm not sure why that is doing that. Yeah. There'll be an um, option that jumps up where you can I'm press on, the video camera. Just because I enjoy looking at people when they're talking, on the left bottom, you'll see uh, two little lines and a yellow dot. Click that, and it might ask you to turn on your video and see what happens. It says turn off video. Should I turn it off sure. and turn it back Try on? It, see what happens. Could be a little bit of a technical glitch. All right, there you're off. Turn it on again. And thanks to our watcher Woody for joining there us. There we hey. are. Look wow. at that handsome okay. face. Let's talk punk Woo. rock. Hey, I'm from LA, so I kind of uh, we have some similarities, you know. But I just was the actress, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I was reading about that, and we definitely have some similarities. But, um, you know, it, so as far as that went, right, so then I'm, you know, I had a friend, like I said, that was, uh, you know, moving to L.A. to start a band, and, you know, he was quite a bit old. He said, hey, man, do you want to go to L.A. and start a band? I said, dude, I've been waiting my whole life to hear this, right? And um, and so we jumped in a band, and, and we came down here, and, you know, and that's really where, you know, as a 15 at that, I just turned 16. So I left home Christmas day, 15. And then I turned 16, March 15th. So it was about three months in between. And we came to LA April 1st. And, you know, and when we got down here, man, also, you know, the mid eighties was completely different when you're a 16 year old kid by yourself. Um, you know, because it was, you know, that was like the height of gangland, you know, people talk about gangs, nowadays and, and you know and you see this in, in different cultures and things like that but in the 80s man la was really gang everybody right and, and it wasn't even like necessarily drug dealing gangs or violent gangs but it was just cliques of people that call themselves gangs and for protection you know what i mean like it didn't matter 
who you were or where you lived at. I had gangs in, you know, I belonged to a gang in Laguna Beach. Like, what do you got? A bunch of white kids running around. Laguna Beach. <laughs> you know, we're going to attack you with sailboats. And, and, you know, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, wow. Oh. I ripped the I ripped the alligator off your shirt. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and boy. then but then you know, then I was also you know part of uh, you know gangs from Hollywood, right? Which was a lot like obviously a lot rougher, you know, and 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 just the but it was the amount of violence, you know, for me that was kind of overwhelming. And you know, at the time you just kind of absorb it and you don't think anything, but. When you're going to these punk rock shows back in the days, it wasn't like it was today where, you know, like you bought a ticket and there was security and they frisk you and, and all these things. Like you just, you went to a place like Fenders and Long Beach or, you know, the Olympic Auditorium in downtown LA. And, you know, our listeners are kind of an example. So at 16 years old, I went to a show at the Olympic Auditorium, which was like an old boxing gym in downtown LA. And this was 1986. And, you know, there was five punk rock bands and within, you know, like it was just crazy. See, picture five thousand unsupervised, angry anarchist type people just coming for this concert, and and inside, you know, like we're just like rushing the doors, right? Like so, there was like nobody was paying for tickets, and you had three separate mosh pits, right? And you had one in the middle that was just like all the punk rockers, and then you had one to the right, which was like kind of like the skinhead people, and you know, and it was so like that was their whole thing. And then on the other side, we still had little tendencies at the time, which were mostly like Latino gang members, right? And I remember trying to go to the bathroom, and I was in one of the pits, right? And got thrown in the skinhead pit, got thrown out of that, went back through the punk rock pit. And I was trying to get to the bathroom on the far side, and, uh, and I got stuck in the suicidal pit. And there were guys just like going through like this with switchblades, like just open switchblades, you know, just like, and I'm like, I just have to go pee, you know what I mean? Like I'm just, you know, but, you know, and it wasn't then. Like I said, when we left the club or when we left this auditorium afterwards, you know, no joke. I count, I counted 39 ambulances, all with doors open and people on the gurneys. There was every, every single car was smashed out, and you know, and being a 16 year old kid, I'm like, wow, this is intense. You know, I mean, people just laying around, beating up and, and everything, and like, we're just so going to see some bands, you know, that was the whole plan, right? I think we all like split like two Mickey's 40 ounces before we got there. You know, we're little kids passing around. Woo-hoo, here we are, you know, and, and you leave there. And you're like, it, it looks like war times, you know, and, and, and the reason why, you know, I kind of go into that background and share that is because if that's where if that's the day you're experiencing and then you go and you're sleeping in an abandoned building or you're sleeping like not in a home, you know, somebody else's where you got to be quiet, sneaking in and you're sleeping on the floor and you're afraid to get caught or whatever. Then when you find alcohol and drugs, uh, that's what we call a solution. Right. That's not a problem. It's no longer a moral choice. You know, and, and I always bring it up because I work with so many youth and I talk about things. I'm like what people don't understand about alcohol and drugs kind of outside of the realm of addiction or treatment centers or recovery centers is they always view alcohol and drugs as what? The problem, mm. right? And I was, the, that wasn't the problem, man. It was everything else that was the problem. That's the solution. And until we get to the solution-based therapy or these solution-based modalities for people to understand actually what they're even dealing with, we're going to continue to see the failure rate 
just nosedive, you know, or just skyrocket. You know what I mean? That's why it doesn't work because that wasn't the problem, right? And we're starting to see this. And, and, and I also share this because I know you both really understand that, right? And, and so this isn't a new concept. You're like, yeah, uh, duh. Like what Chris is saying is true. Like, you know what I mean? Like these solution-based deals where we're looking at the trauma and the codependency. And, stuff. and I, I have what I like to call like the four levels of what it looks like. And, you know, and I think Sherry talked a little bit about it last week. I listened to her episode and it's true. Like trauma is definitely the root. But I like to go trauma is the root of codependency. Codependency is the root of addiction. And the addiction is the root of all the evils in your life. And how I define the evils in your life are the things that keep you from being your true authentic self and being who you want to be in life. Mm -hmm. Not just like demonic evil or anything like that, right? And so you have this kind of like four-tiered layer. And so if you be right that takes care of the evil, so now we're not holding people up or drugs or cancer or whatever. And then we the second level, which is then treatment for 30 days. So it's like you take care of the first two, you think you're good, and then you wonder why you're in a constant state of, of relapse or, or why you still don't get the life you want. It's like because we don't dig all the way down to the bottom. Right. And, and get that those things to help people. So anyway, long winded uh, answer to your question there, Chris. But that's really but, but in, in reality, that's kind of started. And 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 what that raised me up, and you'll notice the name of my book is Chris Punk Rock Pastry. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah. And the reason why I, I called it that right was because the prayer is the spiritual part of my life, which is what I, I consider to be the actual opposite of addiction. We'll get into more of that later. And then the punk rock is this, that's my authentic self, right? That's my genuine self. Like, so if I speak at a church, I'm like, guess what? You guys are going to hear the story of punk rock and how awesome it is. And I don't want to hear any back talk, <laughs> right? If I go, you know, if I go anywhere, I'm like, listen, you know, I, I, you know, I was, you know, whatever, shamed over punk rock back in those days. And I've stood strong. And now I'm, you know, it's funny because my, my, my father's passed away since and, you know, he was a missionary and all these things, and, and that's a whole other story. But, you know, it's just funny because now I get invited on uh, podcasts and I get to talk to, like, you know, singers from, like, huge heavy metal bands these days. You know what I mean? They're, like, friends of mine. And when I talk about spirituality to them and, and you know, and how I view God and my – every single one of them is like, Chris, you know, I wasn't really big into, into God or spirituality, but the way that you explain it makes it relatable. And I'm going to try doing some of this prayer and meditation. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my dad could hear this. You know what I mean? Because I know he's like going, damn you, Iron Maiden. You're ruining my kid's life. You know what I mean? And now I'm hanging out with Iron Maiden. I'm like, look, man, they want to be part of your team, dad. You know what I mean? Like we're all hanging out. By the way, if you haven't heard Iron Maiden's new album. I grew up with Iron Maiden. My um, my father was uh, the cameraman for their tour behind the Iron Curtain. So. When I was a kid, I was sitting with Nico McBrain on his drum set, didn't have a clue, you know, how big they were. But that was my my dad's life. I mean, he went to Japan and he had long hair and they would say, I run me done. I run. <laughs> so that's, uh, By the way, have you two heard their new album? That. Yeah, yeah. No, I did say they got a new album. I'm hoping uh, that the tour will make it once some of this, uh, you know, nonsense is over and, and we can all get back to oh, absolutely to right on around the world. The world. I play on the radio all the time. Oh, that's and awesome! Yeah, see, I told you we we're oh, going to get along great. Right. You know what I mean? This is hard. 
<laughs> well, I used to spin records, and um, all those great punk hits have withstood the test of time. And, you know, it's funny to think, take music and take religion, two ideally different concepts, much maligned in today's society, socioeconomically. But if there are three things that I find in the recovery community, and Danny gets this right in more ways than I even, I think, to educate, to inform, but ultimately to entertain. The three virtues that I was taught in my business is exactly what's playing out in, this, in the recovery community today. Because we're not telling people how to live. Not at all. We're just saying, listen, we've got something here. We hear what you've said, but here's what we have done. If this is salable to you, take it, please. We offer it to you. No questions asked. If you don't want it, that's fine. That's fine. Chris, I want to hear from you. How exactly did it come up until a point? Because evidently you were an addict for quite some time. Was there ever a point where it just came crashing down and you said, I've had enough? Yeah. You know, one thing before I, I jump into that question, Chris, I, I, you know, I want to talk another thing just real quick about the punk rock community that I really wish we would adapt in treatment centers and in recovery as well. And one of the things I'm sure if you're familiar with the way a, a punk rock show works or whatever, you know, they have the mosh pit, right? We were talking about that earlier. But when you're at a punk rock show and you're in the mosh pit, there's one thing that always happens, right? And that's it. You know, you could be going a thousand miles an hour in any direction. The music's playing. It's loud. People are going crazy. But the minute somebody hits the floor, everybody stops, right, and, and, and looks out for that person. They bend down. They pick them up. They make sure everything is okay. And then they continue on. And I'm like, why don't we do that in the recovery community? Sure. Why don't we do that in our faith-based communities? Why don't we do, you know, it's like, what happens when somebody goes down the recovery community? We stand there, we look at them, we're like, oh, you didn't call your sponsor, huh? Mm, too bad. Or, oh, you weren't working the steps? Well, now you know why you relapsed. <laughs> like, what are you doing, Out the man? you go, you, know, you like, charlatan. Like, yeah, you know, it's like like it's like they fall to the ground, and, and we, before we help them up, we got to ask them ten questions to see why they fell to the ground. We, you know what I mean? Instead of just picking them back up and being like, "Okay, are you still alive? Oh, thank gosh. Okay, great. Let's continue on. Let's see what we did wrong. Watch out for that guy over there. He hit you pretty hard, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, we, we don't. You know, can you imagine if that was like a punk rock where we stop? Like, well, you fell down. Why is that? Because you were being a jerk. Okay, well, you're gonna stay down there for a while until we feel like, or or oh, you fell down because you were drinking too much. Shame on you. You should know. You know. Come on, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of shame. You know, I, just, I really wish people. we would adapt that, that thing. And, and people kind of laugh at it when I talk about it and, you know, and, and when I travel, you know, and talk. But it's true. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, there's no other community that I've ever been at where when somebody goes down for whatever reason, everybody stops around them, picks them back up, makes sure they're okay. And then we travel on and then we figure out what's wrong. And instead, it's the opposite most of the time. We will let, we we blame something for why they fell, yeah. and then you know, and and we do that. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to um, talk about that real quick. Um, no, thank you for doing that. God bless you for doing so. You know, there were so many times, Chris, that that I hit, you know, what they would call that bottom or whatever. And you know, one thing about addicts, man, is we are resilient. You know, we. We're creative and we're thoughtful and we're sensitive and we're extroverted and we're introverted and we're intelligent and we're, you know, it's like we're all walks of life. And and so a lot of the times you don't really realize you're at a bottom because 
depending on your level of trauma or your level of emotional pain, you don't know when to stop. You know, and, and that was one thing that tied. Like, so if you have nothing to live for, why would you stop? It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, you don't, that's not a bottom to you, right? Like, and, you know, I was married and um, the first time I'll, I'll share two real quick ones, but, you know, I was married uh, to a wonderful woman and, and, you know, and we got a house in Santa Monica and she was the VP of a, a big video game company. And, and, you know, I was 30 years old and I had come from, you know, leaving that house with a backpack and a skateboard at 15, moving to Hollywood, having nothing, living in abandoned houses, playing in punk rock bands, all these things to finally get to this point in my life where this was my reality. And, you know, and I remember just looking around and going, okay, listen, I got a house and a beautiful wife and like, she has a great job. And, and these are all the things I've always wanted. And, and I'm still not even all together there. You know what I mean? Like I just made the kind of switch from playing rock and roll into like getting a job. So I was trying to figure that whole thing out. It wasn't going that good. But she was still, she was like, okay, it's cool. Take your time. I got us covered. You know, the money, don't worry about any of that stuff. And, and you know, and what I always share is that, you know, that's when I finally realized like, hey, I can quit doing drugs and drinking the way that I do now because I actually achieved all the things that I wanted to achieve. Mm. But what happened was, is that when I could have quit, I didn't want to quit. And when I wanted to quit, I couldn't quit. Yep. Yep. So within a year, right, I got kicked out of that house. And, and, and this is no blame on her. When somebody consistently lies to your face, takes all the money out of the bank account and acts inappropriately, you just don't stay married. It's not about till death do us part when that kind of stuff starts happening, right? This wasn't one simple argument. This was, this was after seven years of, you know, are you, you know, watching the whole thing go through and then finally decide, okay, it looks like you got it together. Let's get married. I trust you. And then you letting them down again and stuff. So I don't blame her, but you know, it, it deescalated so quickly where I went from this house in Santa Monica into my car. And a month later they towed my car. I was addicted to drugs and for stuff and dumpsters and doing all that stuff. And then they towed my car cause I had so many parking tickets. And then here I am at 31 years old right back literally a block away from the exact same place that I hit Hollywood at 16 years old. And so I knew the game, right? It was like, and this is what, the reason I share this is because this is that codependency. This is that family, that toxic family shame, right? It's like, I didn't heal anything I needed to heal between 15 and 31. So of course at 31, when my solution leaves, which is the drugs and alcohol, what do I, what am I left with? I'm still left with that 15 year old kid. That, that, you know, was back on the streets of Hollywood. And, you know, and you know what I'm saying is I'm walking through the streets like Richie uh, Valance from La Bamba. Because, and I say that because I only have a guitar around my neck like I'm some kind of rock god. But I got no home <laughs> and no clean clothes and no money. Right. And, and I'm just like, well, I can't believe nobody else has faith in me. It's up to me again to make it big. Right. Like, dude, like you already did that. Like you blew it. You know what I mean? Like nobody's coming after you. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody wants to hear you play, you know, welcome to the jungle on the corner acoustic, you know, for five bucks. Nobody cares. All right. Just go. I, I and, relate to this so much. And, it's crazy. As do I. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so the reason I bring that up is that was the first time. So you would think when you had this house and when you had this, and this is after you've already been an addict for so many years, and then you literally end up a block away in the same bushes or in the same little alleyways that you stayed in as a kid. And you're like, oh, this is cool. Like, I've been through this before. I can survive it. It's no big deal. I'll make mm -hmm. it big again. You know, and this time I'm going to add my, my wife to the list of people that have already given up on me, like my mom and my dad 
and you know some of the people at church and some of the guys that were in bands with me that kicked me out and you know what i mean like i'm just carrying all that stuff like they say right the old crap sack on my back like well i can just add her name to it now people that, that didn't believe me so when i make it big i'm not going to give any of you a dollar you know what i mean right. no and in the meantime you. right yeah and then I'm like sitting there outside a guitar center in the pouring down rain on a Sunday night, drinking malt liquor out of a can, just expecting like the gods of whoever to come down and rescue me, right? Like, <laughs> well, you know that you old some girl did, happen. you know, because that's when you're young, it's just it, the weirdest stuff just happens. Uh, you know, I, I had the same thing happen. Yeah. I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but my car got towed. And that was the start of the worst next five years of my life because I was chasing the pipe and I was chasing what I had to do to survive. Like once I lost that car, that was the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And right. I was kind of pushed into doing things that I would not have ever thought about doing. And um, it's just, incredible the depths that we go to you know you you're talking about you were in that house with a very successful wife and then you're right back to the streets and it's just like the same thing and you you know you we're dealing with and that's why they say when you get sober you know you kind of pick up where you left off um when you were a kid when you were sober right? yeah 100 mm. percent and you know, and, and and that being the first one, then I want to jump to the second one because I think this is also important. So now, and remember, when I was with my wife at this point, I, this was me trying to be sober, right? So this wasn't even like me in active addiction. Like when I got married, I was already sober. I was already going to 12-step meetings. Like I was doing all that stuff. And then I had relapsed and I couldn't keep it together. And, and that's when all this other stuff happened. So now let's fast forward 10 years. And I'm living in Las Vegas at this point because, you know, I was doing that leaving to Las Vegas romantic, you know, thing, you know, where you just go there to die because you figure everybody there is just goes oh, around man. the corner. this way. This way you won't be the only one, right? This way. That, that's what <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to Las Vegas. I won't be the worst one. And then I, I'll feel better about myself. You know what I mean? And, um, and of course, that doesn't work. But, you know, but what happens is that, you know, and, and not, you know, I, dive into any vulgarity or, or war stories or anything. But, you know, at this point, my morning routine was to wake up, take a shot of vodka, throw it up in a paint bucket next to my bed, take another shot, throw that up. Usually the third or fourth one would stay down. I'd snort uh, half of 80 Oxycontin, and then I'd smoke a little bit of weed, and I'd lay in the fetal position for five minutes and 26 seconds to five minutes and 32 seconds, which was the exact amount of time I knew it was taken for everything to kick in so I can lift the covers off and get out of bed. And, and I share that because I want our listeners to know that that was me after 10 years of trying to be sober. In that 10-year period between when my wife kicked me out and the scenario I just gave you, I did not go longer than 90 days without going to a meeting in that entire time. I had 14 sponsors. I had already worked the steps three times. And, and, and that's where I was. Right. So this wasn't, this wasn't even me partying. Dude, this was me trying to be sober. And that was my morning routine. Right. Just like just filled with self-loathing and, and, you know, and just not caring anymore. And, and so that's why I bring this up is because for me, 
it took more than just doing some 12 step stuff. It took more than just going to meetings. It took more than being in that community. And this is just for me. I'm just pointing out, right? I'm not saying it doesn't work because it does work and it's a good foundation, but I had not done any of the codependency work and I had not done any of that trauma work. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is what I'm trying to share is so important. And, and also why I titled this talk, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't connection is spirituality. And I'm not trying to knock the guy with the video that says addiction is, or the opposite of addiction is connection. I know his heart's in the right place. But the problem, a couple things I just see as a challenge with that is that, A, he's not an addict. So how does he know? Right? Like, you really have to be an addict to understand this. And the things, I appreciate every doctor and psychologist that spends decades learning about addiction and, and Nora Volkoff and, and people like that, you know, that, that can come down and say, sure. this yeah. is what we think will work. But if you're not an addict, you don't know the emotional tie, the emotional trauma that goes with being Absolutely. an addict. You're just looking at, at a piece of paper. And like I said, that's one, you know, I'm not trying, I'm not going against that guy like as a royal battle, like Mike Tyson and somebody else like, hey, put me up against that guy on a TED Talk. I'll take, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying the reality see, of it. Chris, they're quoting from textbook. They're just quoting from textbook, but as you quite rightly say, God bless them for the initiative, but they don't necessarily have the street cred. So in actual fact, they're doing a lot more damage than good. And I think so, because, you know, you see, you know, that, that video is like six million hits. And I hear this in treatment all the time. These people come in like, oh, the opposite of addiction is connection. I'm like, no, man, please quit saying that, you know. And, and the reason why I say it's spirituality over the connection too, I just kind of want to dive into that real quick sure. is that first of all that experiment was done on a thing called rat park so we're not rats that's a problem you know what i mean we could we could have done that with monkeys too if, if you were to show me an example of that where there was actually a park of people then that would be awesome but when we look at that it's like if connection was the only thing in the way that he's talking about we have that we have treatment centers that abound, right? I mean, you look at most of these like sober livings and treatment centers nowadays, and they're like million dollar houses. Yeah. And you put these, you know, you put 10 people in there, and what happens? Even relapse. Where, how is that? If that was the opposite of addiction, we could all just go into these nice mansion sober livings and, and all form brotherhoods and, and go play in the park and and we wouldn't choose the cocaine water, right? Very like much. that's not it doesn't work like that. Very much. Well it's a very open minded but thing. But it's to it's say. like if you we look at be crucified spirit, for it. No. And, and you know, and, and like I said, why I think it's spirituality is because when I look at spirituality, right, I look at the core of spirituality, which is the ability to sit with yourself and be okay. Hmm. I like that. Right? You have a power greater than yourself that you believe in. You know, God, the creator, what, whatever you write that looks like to you. You know, I don't suggest you do the ocean or doorknob or something, but I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just here to say, like, you have something to believe in and, that, and you can sit with yourself and know that that thing is going to take care of you or that force is going to keep you sober and alive and propel you forward. To me, that's like what spirituality is, right? You can throw in prayer and meditation on that 100% as well, right? Because you need to seek, listen, you know, in that relationship. But you, you, when you look at the root of any of these things, the people with the long-term sobriety always have that same solution, you know. And, and even if you look at twelve-step recovery, 
like not using that as the only modality. But if you look at that, it's a spiritual program, right? They say that all the time. And yet when you go to the rooms, I don't see it. Oh, let's talk about, oh, you know, my higher power is God. Oh, I don't want to offend anybody. And, and I don't want to, you know, say anything to make anybody feel awkward. Well, you, you just did. If you're going to believe in something, believe in it. <laughs> yeah. That statement right? is I mean, one like that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just saying, you know what I mean? That's like, like, quit trying to not offend people and start trying to save people's lives. Yes, absolutely. Right? Like, like, this isn't a game you play where you can't not offend people. All right? I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm not saying to offend people, but I'm saying believe in what you believe in. If I get up in front of a room, like I see some of these people, and they're like, well, you know what? My higher power is God, but I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to offend anybody. It's like, then you've already taken away any validity of the rest of your story to me. Mm, wonderfully Because said. you're still a people pleaser and you're still codependent. You guys see where I'm going with this? I'm going to give that's you that codependent. applause on that one. Thank you. Yeah. But, but that's where you see where this codependency really comes in. Mm. It's like people get sober and then they still try and not offend people. And they still try and please people yeah. and they don't set boundaries. Yeah. And, and then they mm. wonder why... Mm. You know, why they keep going out or why they can't have the things they want in life. It takes a and, while, though. I mean, it does take a long time to get there. You know, yeah. it took me a long time. I couldn't, oh, me uh, you know, we come in pretty battered. So, God, it, it, even at five years, I was ready to put a gun to my head and say, you know, because there was so much more to be revealed. So I was yeah. not there yet, you know. So, you know, I... I try not to judge people. And I also find it very annoying though, when people say, I don't want to offend anybody. It's a, it's just like a huge distraction and it is very annoying. Um, but I think we just learn as we go, you know, and, and um, there's someone for everybody kind of um, is kind of the way I see it. But I do find that very kind of frustrating when people do that. It, it's like a, it's kind of a, it's like me, me, me. It, it's not really about them. It's more about the right. person that's saying it, right? Very yeah. clearly said, and I want to add to that. I feel that certain people just don't know, number one, when to keep quiet, because when they speak, they overtly don't know what they're talking about, in my <laughs> humble opinion, because I had that when I was an NA here. And secondly... There are people who don't want to quote-unquote offend, but the wording sets people off. So their intentions might be good, but ultimately yeah. at the end of the day, it won't have the desired effects because now the person in question who's receiving it is now going to be seen as the one that's going to get battered. Or they might take it in, but it goes in through the one ear and out the other. Another thing I want to add, Chris, uh, codependency is a very fascinating subject because it has a far reach in the sense of... You're yeah. being attached to this one cyclical unit, mm. but it also extends to abusive marriages, abusive relationships, and even abusive, abusive familial structure. In your travels, have you had any of those sorts of conversations like that I've just mentioned? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really like to stress about codependency is that there are... In, in this context that we're going to talk about today, because I want to keep everything really simple and relatable. I don't want to jump into too much clinical stuff um, because this topic is so needed, let's say, that I don't want somebody to, to lose the definition in, in a thing. But um, So I define codependency as the need to be validated by somebody else 
in order to have worth. Well said. There's, that's the first type, right? And the second type is the need for everybody to be okay around you before you're okay. Okay. So those are the two types that, that we're really talking about. And those are really what I want. And the reason I share is because a lot of times people, I say codependency and they're like, oh, I quit. My parents don't take care of me anymore. I'm on my own. <laughs> I'm like, oh. I'm like that, that, that's not codependency. That's that's a spoiled child. That's a big difference. All right. Don't, don't, don't get confused. You know what I mean? That's a, I'm keeping quiet you know, here. I'm yeah. Quiet. <laughs> but so it's like when we look at that, you know, and, and also, so we're kind of clear as, do you know, do, where the term codependency actually came from the initial, um, I don't want to say recovery groups, but the initial um, recovery community in a way, which was based in the church. So if we go back to when, before Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, when you tried to get sober, there was only two ways usually, like it was a, a mental ward or it was a church. That's how it was, right? And they would put you in their basement for a couple of weeks and you would help them out with so like the feeding, uh, you know, the soup lines or whatever. And then you would go back to work after a couple of weeks, right? And so this whole thing started back in a, like around the 30s because what they were seeing is that somebody would come in off the street, right, drunk, like, you know, hey, pastor or whatever, can you help me? And they'd get them sober and get them back to work and back to home or whatever. And they'd start coming to church and everything would be fine for a month or so. And then they'd just disappear for a couple of weeks. And then they'd come back and they'd be all drunk again, like, hey, Jim, what happened to you? And, and they always heard these stories like, well, my wife was nagging me and, and I didn't know what to do. And I just wanted to have one beer and it led to this. And now I'm homeless again. And, or, you know, or my, embarrassed me in front of everybody else. And, and so I decided to have a beer that day with lunch and then, you know, and, and so they kept, and they started noticing that all the reasons why people were relapsing in this, you know, non-structured environment, just either a church or some kind of support, right, for a couple of weeks, is is based on relationships. Because these people would go back out after they had a couple of days or weeks sober, and, and it's like they were still waiting for people to validate them, tell them it was going to be okay, and they wouldn't. Mm. And so that's how the whole term codependency started. And since then, obviously, now we've been able to go through it. But the work that I particularly do, I love when it says, is like, codependents don't know how to love people but they pretend to love people in the way that they want to be loved. Hmm. Right. So it's like, and, and you'll see this, right. And most codependents is, you know, and especially in recovery or whatever are very passive people, right. Because they don't want to like, they're like, Oh, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody. I just want this, I, you know, and, 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 and that's really, that's why there's no boundaries and there's no, you know, they don't take any, because that self-worth, they haven't built it up. And there's what I like to call the six A's. Right, which is out of a book that, that I use called the One Way Relationship Workbook by a guy named uh, Reverend Al Ells out of Phoenix. And um, he actually uh, has sold me the rights to that book because I use it so much. And um, he's getting older in years. And uh, so it was a very nice thing for him to do because I have designed a lot of my curriculum around this book and it's amazing. But he talks about things called the six A's, right? Which are affection, acceptance, attention affiliation, approval, and abilities. And these are the six things that all healthy children need as they grow up, right? So it's like, are you, were you accepted by your family? Were your abilities recognized? Uh, did you get enough affection? Um, you know, did they affiliate you? So like, oh, hey, there's my son, you know, Chris over there. Yeah, that one's mine. You know, was that going on? Was there, you know, approval? So not only did they say like, hey, Chris is a good soccer player. Chris, tell you what can we help you get into a good college that has a soccer program? You know, like, 
And it's like, you know, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but you'll see codependent people did not get those six A's, right? They, you know, they maybe they missed affection. And so you'll see that a lot, right? Where you see people that are codependent on other people's affection, right? We see that a lot, especially, you know, like we see a lot of women get into the, and the reason I share is because that we see a lot of women get into abusive relationships. Why? Because they didn't get affection as a kid. So if they have some guy that shows them affection and then still turns around and smacks them around a little bit or whatever, that action is inappropriate or inappropriate, but the affection is actually the only reason why they're there. And, and, and to them, that might be the payoff, mm -hmm. right? And it, it's not, obviously it's not healthy, but I'm just saying like, that's where this comes from, right? Or if they were exposed to that, right? Of seeing, you know, domestic violence happen in the house and, and, and their mom was fine and their mom loved them. So, you know, th that can't be all bad, right? But we get to that generational toxic shame, you know, and, and John Bradshaw has a lot of great stuff on that as well. But, you know, it just perpetuates. It's like if your parents didn't get affection, guess what you're not getting? Affection. And, and it's not that it's their fault necessarily. How they were taught. And, you know, and it, if we look at it from the get-go, right, most people that have children shouldn't have children. And, and I don't mean – I'm not trying to be rude. But, you know, like, Chris, what you just said about a lot of people speak and shouldn't, I think most people that have children shouldn't, you know, and – it, because like they don't make sure that they're okay, right? That they, you know, of course, every couple probably goes the same thing, right? Like, you know what? When we're going to have kids, let's go ahead and get our careers on point. Let's make sure we get a good house and all of our student loans are paid off. And then we're going to save up 10 grand and then let's make a baby, right? Hmm. That's probably what they say. And then all of a sudden, six months or a year later, while they're still working internship jobs or where the car's broken down or they're renting an apartment somewhere and they still have $100,000 in student loans, you know, people are people. We have sex. It's, let's just be honest, right? And all of a sudden, like, guess what? I'm pregnant. What? Oh, uh, I thought we were going to wait 10 years. Well, we were, but I told you. You know what I mean? Like, and, and all of a sudden, now you have this kid. And, and, and so you weren't completed as an adult either. And you just so you automatically revert back to what, what did my parents tell me? And I'm going to be the opposite. And as we all know, what you resist persists. So if you want to be the exact opposite of your parents, don't ever say that because you will obviously become your parents. All right. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but it's like when you try not to be that forceful or that disciplinarian or that non-affectionate parent, that's just automatically what you become almost because you're trying so hard to be different. Does that make sense? Like yeah. I'll be different think, than this parent. Do you think that like when I was younger, my parents were very affectionate. Um, later sure. in life at my tail end of my using the last eight years I was uh, meth it was like my you know my daily habit and at, okay. at that point I was living with somebody for five years and he was abusive and would actually <laughs> I went to the ear nose and throat doctor yesterday and they said have you ever been hitting the head on the right side I'm like uh yeah I was in a car and I saw stars I remember well that's why your ears ring from 20 years ago but this person would yeah. abuse me for five years and I never had any abuse as a child. I don't know why I stayed. I mean, it, I think it was because I had somebody to do the drugs with. I mean, this person was horrible to me. They would steal, they would, but I lived with them and they lived off of me. And I just continued and continued and continued just to stay, you know, and it, it just, it's just a very, very messed up, you know, way of living that codependency because of the drug, you know, I stayed because if I, I left, 
would I be alone? Would I be doing my drugs alone? Would I have to try to be a survivor by myself? Even though he wasn't doing anything, I was doing the survival thing and he was there to do it with me. You know, it's like a, a, a sick little thing, you know, that, that lasted five years. So I think later in life you can, it took me actually a, a lot of years to recover from that. When I got sober five years in here, I am still dating people that cheated. So I had to quit seeing anybody get a male therapist and figure out what the hell, you know, is my problem. And it's weird because I never had any of that as a child, but I had it later in life. Well, can I jump in here real quick? Yeah. Um, because I'd love to address that. You have to also remember, and this is for everybody listening, not just you, Danielle, but when people are in their addiction, they're not in their right mind. Yeah. Obviously, right? They're in stored addiction. So you have the what's not positive, right? You're only concerned is with the drugs. If you got to get hit a few times, hey, so what, right? If, if you got to, you know, go to jail a few times, hey, so what? My is to get drugs and change them. Like common, you know, is, is just white noise, right? And the reason I share that is because so many times I hear people talk about how their addiction caused shame. Right. And, and, and the thing is, I, I want to talk about this because the root of codependency is shame. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I hear this all the time. Like, well, yeah, you know, in my addiction, I did so many things and I'm so ashamed. No, the addiction did not cause the shame. You had shame before the addiction. And that was part of the solution for you. And when we go back in and we look at it, we will find some form of childhood trauma that you had. And like Cher was talking about, too, not necessarily a traumatic event, but some kind of childhood trauma, meaning you associated yourself with something that made you feel bad about yourself that you took into. And when you did those drugs or you drank, it made you forget about that little girl that wasn't paid attention to or that little girl that was embarrassed or that little boy that got beaten up on the playground, whatever, you know, those things were that you had accumulated in your life. Right. Yeah. And so that would be my answer. You know, just kind of like when you're talking about that, like, why would I say it? Because you weren't interested in him or, or you, you weren't trying to, you, he wasn't your husband. He wasn't like your life partner, right? He was a drug buddy. And when you want to get drugs, you're with somebody that's going to achieve that first. You weren't trying to like put on a white dress and go to the, you know, the Galapagos Islands and search with the turtles and, and you know, do, do <laughs> candlelit dinners together. Because if that was your intention, then you would have never even been with this person to begin with. Am I right? So, so that's one of the things that we look at. Um, and, and kind of going with that, I'd like to kind of jump in real quick to show people or our listeners like about kind of how this codependency starts and how it associates with this trauma, if you don't mind. And I have what I call the three different age groups. It's from zero to eight, 14 to 17 and 19 to 21. Now in the zero to eight year old, Time in your life is when every single child, no matter if you're from Kenya or Canada or Los Angeles, adapts their emotional coping mechanisms. doesn't matter who you are or where you're raised. That's just how the body works. And so it's like when you learn how to be happy, when you learn how to be sad, when you learn how to be frustrated, disappointed, all these things, right? And so this is also when we have discovered that this is kind of where the root of childhood trauma starts. 
Once again, defining trauma is not an act of physical or sexual abuse, but something that happened to you that you responded to emotionally, right? That you didn't know how to process. So let's say, um, let's go with this one. So at six years old, uh, one day I'm playing with some Legos in the living room and I hear a car screech and hit something out, out, outside of my door. So I, I go to run outside and my mom yells, Chris, get back in the house, get back in the house. And I'm like, mom, I want to see what happened. She goes, you know, get back in the house. So she goes outside, comes back in 10 minutes later. Honey, I'm so sorry, but Rufus just got hit by a car and he died. You know, Rufus the dog, right? And so I'm like, what happens? Instantly, I get mad at who? The driver, right? What? Mom, why did that guy hit our dog? He was, why wasn't he watching where he was going? He's ruined our lives. You know what I mean? He was my, he was my best friend. And so two hours later, my dad gets home and we sit down at the table. We're having dinner. And my dad's like, hey, what happened? The dog got hit by a car? And my mom says, yeah, honey, I guess, you know what? Somebody left the back gate open and the dog ran out into the street. The guy didn't even see him and he hit him and, and you know, the dog died. So now what do I hear? Uh-oh. Somebody left the back gate open, mm-hmm. right? Well, somebody left the back gate open, right? And what does my mom always tell me? Chris, make sure you shut that gate or the dog will get out. So now, instead of me being mad at the driver of the car for killing my dog, I'm mad at, I left the gate open, which means I'm untrustworthy. I killed my dog, which means I'm a terrible person. And see, if I say anything, like I take responsibility for leaving the gate open, I'm never getting another dog and my parents are going to hate me. Mm-hmm. You see that? That's all subconscious, but that, that, that's like the root of it. Yeah. And how that plays in, so that's the trauma. Let's jump to the codependency. So two years later, when I'm eight years old, we move, right? I go, I'm going to a new school. Well, we were poor at the time. So my mom had bought some clothes from like a neighbor at a garage sale, you know, for like for our going back to school clothes. You know, I didn't think anything of it. I put on my little Star Wars t-shirt or whatever, you know, and, and, and went off to school. Well, I walk into class and also the first thing I hear, being a new kid, right, is some kid saying, hey, the new kid's wearing the shirt that I threw away. I think my mom sold it at our garage sale. Ha <laughs> ha. And I'm just like, uh, right? And so I look at him and, and, I, and I look at the way he's dressed and his hair and, and all the kids that are laughing at how they look. And, and so I, what do I say? I don't ever want to feel like this again. So I'm gonna, I want to look like that guy, right? I want to dress like that. I want to look like that with my hair or whatever because I want to fit in. And that's where the codependency starts, right? Because I quit being authentic with myself and I start going after what's popular and how kids will view me as popular, right? So it's like, I don't, like, I could have just been like, you know, if I would have had, I'm not going to blame some of my parents, but, you know, if I would have had that support, I could be like, oh, this is cool. This should be your shirt. That's right, right? But it's like, you don't think you're not that quick. You know what I mean? So you just sit in shame over there, right? And, mm-hmm. but, but so that's the point I'm saying, right? And then, so now you have the trauma and the codependency coming on. So you start to do that for everybody, right? You want to please your coaches and, you know, and, and certain parents and things like that. And so when you get to 14, when you want to, you know, when you start this self-identity process, right? Say when you get to high school, the 14 to 17, what do you do? You get there and you start looking around like, hey, who has the same shoes as me? Oh, that kid over there. Okay, maybe we can be friends, right? Or, oh, that kid has a skateboard. I have a skateboard. Or that kid has a football or I have a football. Hey, so we should be pals, right? And so you start to get like your little group of people or whatever it is, you know, and for some kids, you know, they fit in and they do stuff. Other kids are just all by themselves and, and you know, they, they don't want to fit in maybe. But the point of this is that, when you're out with those friends, then especially in American culture, 
right? We have this experimentation phase or this initiation phase of like, hey, try this drink or hey, try these drugs. Like I got it from my older brother or I got it from my uncle. Like none of us ever go into like downtown Detroit or downtown Compton 15 to score drugs and try them, right? No, it's always from like somebody that you know and trust. That's that's the thing, right? But it's like when you, and for some of the people, right? For some people, when they try the drugs or the alcohol, like my sister, right? She tries, she's like, this is disgusting. I hate this, right? And then, but I try it and I'm like, wow, now I feel, oh, I can finally breathe, right? And you hear this from all the time, right? When people get into this. And like I said, because of what happened with the dog, what happened at school, and then what happened in, you know, in my 14, 15, 16 year old gang activities and all these other activities that I was involved in, by the time I'm 17, weed, alcohol, beer doesn't really work. And somebody, you know, that I trust turns me on to a little bit of heroin and I try that heroin and all of a sudden I'm like Mick Jagger, you know, I'm like, this is, I feel great. Oh my, I look great. I feel great. Life is going to be great. I don't know why people talk so bad about heroin. I feel great. You know what I mean? Like, like literally that person you see on TV that just starts rambling all these like incoherent, great thoughts. Like, you know what? I feel great. Do I look good? Am I happy? <laughs> this is great. I pick up my face. You know, I played my bass for like 30 seconds and then I nodded out. Came back five minutes later and kept on playing. You know what I mean? Like this is the best day ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and that's, and then what happens is, is that last phase, which is 19 to 21, is typically for most people after they leave high school and they still don't really know who they are. They have this identity or they've used drugs and alcohol to kind of fit in or whatever. Then when they get 19 to 21 is when they don't no longer have their parents to, you know, have any rules on them because usually they live on their own and they're not in really school or maybe they're in college. And if they're in college, they can just freely party. And that's where you start to use drugs and alcohol for your emotional coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the, that's the trait. And that meets everything. And then what happens? And then you go from 19 to 21 and from 21 to 25 or 31 or 40 or 45, whenever finally you just crash and burn to that, you can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? But it's all based in emotional distress. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like, Man, I wish you could like, explain this to everybody. You know what I mean? I wish we, this could be like something they could put on TV, you know, like say the presidential thing or something. You know what I mean? Because people actually could use this information. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, <laughs> listen, you, you feel like this at this age, this is a warning sign. Because most of us, I mean, I hear this so often when I speak in places, is people come like, Chris, I've always been like that. And I never knew why. I wish somebody would have told me. Mm. Or, you know, or like, I didn't, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, I didn't know. Yeah. Like most kids don't know. If, if they try, you know, a, a Percocet or a, or a heroin or, or any of these drugs one time that you could be in that in that circle of like, sorry, you only got one time. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the times you don't get a second chance to try it again and decide you don't like it. Once you try it and you decide you like it, the brain registers that and says, hey, and the brain doesn't know. Right. The brain's not. Oh, is that cocaine? Chris, shame on you. No, it's like, was that cake? Was that? Cocaine was that a new toy? It doesn't matter. So it's like, oh, that was whatever that was is awesome. Keep doing it. We like that, right? And you're like, but I feel and like it's wrong, money. and that's where the head and the heart. Get. Yeah, and that's kind of where your head and your heart get disconnected finally, right? Because then all of a sudden your head's like, hey, we need some more of that, and your heart's like, I don't think we should do that, Chris. Mm -hmm. You're like, Shh, you be quiet, right? Let's go up here, mm -hmm. and that's why it's so Very hard well to get said. that connection back. Because 
right? Which leads to that spiritual thing that I'm talking about. That's how you really have that spirituality is when you can go from the heart to the head again and be more controlled by this than this. And, the and that's how you, probably you to know bring those two concepts into one so that it works in harmony. Like authentic, you know, being authentic with yourself is basically, yeah. you know, for me, that's spiritual because I couldn't do that. Yeah. And I could see where you would help a lot of kids. I know you do a lot of work at schools and stuff like that. What is the curriculum that you do? Um, you know, it kind of depends on the school because a lot of times the, the depending on the demographic of the school uh, or more importantly, like what's actually going on in the school. Sometimes when I go to the schools, I'll, this is like kind of like the talk I gave you. I'll just make it more high school oriented. So I'll share more stories about my own personal addiction and then kind of throw in some of these little nuggets for them to kind of grasp onto. But, you know, sometimes you'll get there and, and if they just had an overdose, then I'll, I'll have to switch to instead of a prevention to a grief counseling uh, type scenario. You know what I mean? And, and share about maybe my story with addiction, how I lost a lot of friends and how, you know, we shouldn't judge that person or, or you know, like, and, and that's really, unfortunately, that's what's really taking place in a lot of the schools that I go to now is because, I mean, the game has changed. You guys know, I mean, you know, how do we go from 12,000 overdose deaths in 2014 to over 100,000 seven years later? And, you know, and it's like, we don't, you know, we don't see the big picture, you know, I, I sit with, you know, some big time people or whatever that, you know, control how this country operates and drug policy and things like that. And I'm just astonished that they they don't have a clue. And once again, their heart's in the right place, but they don't know how to fix this. You know what I'm like? You guys have to understand, like, we, we the the it's not about education about drugs. It's about drugs kill. Like there there is no more fun. No. Like like if you if you are into any type of heroin or opioid, the fun is over. Like it's not, it's not cool anymore. Rock stars aren't doing it anymore. Like celebrities aren't doing it. Like the days of, you know, all that cool folklore of this will release, it's gone because now it's like one pill kills you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why we have so many over, I can guarantee you out of those hundred thousand deaths, probably about a thousand of them were actually addicts for longer than five years. Sure. The other 99,000 are all people that just experimented or are all people that were like one or two years into this whole thing of drug experimentation or addiction. These aren't long. I mean, you know, it used to, you used to be a heroin addict and you used to have to work at dying. You know what I mean? It wasn't, you never had to worry about overdosing and dying ever. Narcan wasn't even a thing, right? Right. Like the entire time I was addicted to heroin, the entire time I was hanging out with rock stars in Hollywood and we were all doing that stuff. Like somebody overdosed, We'd smack you in the face a few times and, and put, you know, ice cubes up your butt. You know what I mean? That was like, you know, that was that was the Narcan back then. You know what I mean? There was no, there was no, you know, there wasn't like this thing of like where you have to, you know, do this. And things, you know, I also worked with first responders. I was a first responder myself for a while, and um, and you know, and it, it's like we don't give these guys any breaks at all. You know, like we really need to be more supportive of the community around the sober community as well. You know, we people, you know, we're so worried about keeping people sober in the sober community. And yet we're not worried about our first responders and our policemen and, and other people like that, that are actually picking up hundreds of, you know, people. What about their mental health? That's not in the manual. Yeah. It's at an all-time high 
the amount of firefighters and policemen that are using substance abuses or not using yeah. substance, using substances yeah. and that are in substance abuse. The thing is, it was already a stressful job enough, especially firefighter or, you know, now it's pretty much all paramedics. You don't really see that many fires anymore because of building codes and things like that. But, you know, these guys respond to, you know, it used to be heart attacks. Old people have a heart attack. Maybe they died. That's not that traumatic because the person was old and, you know, that kind of thing. But when you're picking up 10 year old, 12 year old kids, like repetitively that are just ice cold and, 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 and their mom and, and maybe, you know, them or somebody in their community sitting there like he was like 12. How does this happen? Well, somebody gave him a pill and he didn't want to say no because he he didn't know. Right. He thought he was just going to fit in. Like, that's what we're talking about. And so, I mean, you know, I don't want to make it overwhelming because that that's not what we're trying to do here today. Right. We've come up with a lot of really good solution based stuff. Mm -hmm. And we've come up with kind of like some of the things that if you struggle with addiction repetitively, you might want to look at the codependency and the trauma as well. Right. As the roots of that, not just quit using the drugs or alcohol. But I'm just saying. You know, when we think about, you know, first responders, this is more like a call to action. Like, listen, man, if you see like guys from the fire department at the grocery store, like buy them a pint of ice cream, you know what I mean? Or a gallon of ice cream or something, you know what I mean? Or or if you see somebody like that at the coffee shop, like, man, just, you know, it's like 10 bucks. But yeah, just even if you just acknowledge them and say, hey, thanks, you guys, for all the stuff you do. Because, I mean, I remember last year I was at a conference working with some people and we had a big issue with some firefighters from West Virginia. And as we, you know, you know, West Virginia has like one of the highest overdose rates. It always does because it has the Appalachians and there's not a whole lot of mm. health care and, you know, all these other things. But that we actually had firehouses that were getting, that weren't going to the calls anymore. And, and, and like, there was like a big protest. Wow. And, and we're like, what do you mean you guys aren't going to calls? Like, well, yeah, we're not going back to so-and-so's house. We've already been there four times this week oh. and saved him from overdosing. Like, we're not going to waste the taxpayers money anymore. And we're like, um, you guys, you can't do that. Like, I, I mean, I, I understand you're frustrated, but at this, you know, and, and then it's like, like, well, what, what, Chris, we'd rather be helping other people that need the help. It's like, well, we're on this fifth overdose call of this guy that doesn't want to live anyway. You know, somebody else was in a car accident and it was somebody's grandma that, you know, was in a lot of pain, you know? So you kind of see how that goes. And, Anyway, I don't want to get off on a tangent on that, but this, you know, I would just like to say if we could acknowledge teachers, if we could acknowledge firefighters, if we can acknowledge policemen, like all these people that look out for us and or our kids in this, especially this type of crisis time, you know what I mean? With all these things going like, I don't know how you could be a teacher anymore. You know what I mean? Like that just, it just doesn't seem fun. You know what I mean? Like you're there trying to help people and they put you on zoom and then they close your school and then they tell you to be over here and then they pay you less and they're like, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense, but they're doing it. So God bless them. Chris, it's Absolutely. been a pleasure. Um, we're running short on time, but I, I wanted to ask you and thank you for coming on. You've been amazing. I've just been kind of in awe well, because this is stuff that I enjoy learning because I'm, you know, I'm not, I swear I must've burned a million brain cells because I used to be witty <laughs> and now I can't complete my sentences. <laughs> so uh, we're all there with you. Before we go, tell us where we can find you. And I want to hear about the pastry part of your book. I was about to ask the same question. <laughs> yeah. You're switching from drugs to I kidney love that. pie? <laughs> yeah, right? It, it's funny because uh, in all the interviews I do, we always get to the last two things and they always say, yeah, you're doing great, but we are out of time. You know what I mean? Like slow it down. Like, we're done. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then the other thing is like, what about the pastry? So... Um, 
I'll talk about the pastry first, and then I'll talk about how you guys can uh, get a hold of me. Because um, I, you know, like I definitely want to talk about that. But uh, so when I had a about a year sober, um, my first Christmas sober, actually about nine months, and um, I've always loved sweets, and, and th- I just that's that's my other addiction, sugar. Right, that's the toughest one Guilty. I've ever had to deal. With. But yeah, right, right here. And um, so I was trying to stay sober and I had 10 bucks. And so I went to the 99 cent store. You know, we got this place in, uh, Chris, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but we have these places in America. They're called the 99 cent store. And you go there and oh, everything's yeah. 99 cents. It's like a big, it's like a big garage sale kind of place, whatever. But anyway, so I went there and I had my 10 bucks and I was trying to stay sober. So I bought seven rolls of this like pre-made cookie dough and two little containers of frosting. I went home to my sober living. I lived in a sober living. And, and so I made like, I think it made like around 50 cookies. I put two in, in like a little Ziploc bag and I took them down to like the beach by where I lived and like the library where all the homeless people were on Christmas Eve. Aww. And I just went up to each person. I was like, hey, listen, man, I made you some Christmas cookies. I used to be exactly where you were at. And I just wanted you to know tonight, Christmas Eve, somebody cares about you. And I had a Santa hat and some stuff. And um, Stewie, you're kidding. No. And, um. And, and so that kind of, and, you know, and it got me through the day sober. So I started thinking, hey, maybe I should do this. And then, you know, I would also go like and try these like $5 cupcakes, right? And they would always be dry and lame. And I'd be like, so mad that I spent five bucks on them, right? So I said, I'm going to, like like a typical punk rocker, I said, I'm going to do this myself. I know I could do it better. So I did. And, um, and I, uh, and so I started, and I, and I started to um, you know, take, it, cakes and, take it all these cakes and cupcakes and, and stuff to like sober me and stuff. And, and then people started asking me to start doing their events. And so I, I started to do all these like catering gigs. And then, um, you know, I decided to use it as a program to help at-risk kids. So when I was going into these continuation schools and stuff and high schools, and they were like, well, we've got a lot of kids that are troubled kids. They need something to do. I said, great, I'll hire them. They can come help me bake. It's e- easy. They can just learn how to frost or whatever. And then that turned in to where I got voted one of the top 200 entrepreneurs of 2016 because of my, uh, my, my commitment and my contribution to the community in, in where I live here in Southern California down the San Diego area. So, it, you know, which was so awesome because I, I got to – thank you – and it, and I got to Las Vegas and I'm hanging out with all these other people and these are like guys from like Google and all this stuff and and uh, and I remember I sat next to Gary V right you guys know who Gary Vaynerchuk is like right and, but I didn't know who he I didn't know who he was right I'm like hey what's up nice to meet you you know what I mean <laughs> I said what do you do he goes oh I own all this stuff he goes what do you do I'm like oh, I, I help kids bake cupcakes you know what I mean <laughs> I'm like I don't even know why I'm here you know? <laughs> but um. <clears throat> Anyway, I know we're running short on time, but there's a whole uh, bunch of fun stuff that goes along with that. And, um, you know, and so I, I did that for a couple of years. And when I would start going around and talking about fundraising for this kind of stuff or, or, or share my story with the cupcakes or the company, that's how I actually kind of turned it into a motivational speaker. And then when I was starting to be a motivational speaker, people were like, hey, you really need to write a book. And I was like, have you not heard my story? Like I left home at 15. That means I left school too. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I have one sentence on each page. You know what I mean? Like there's no periods, no question marks. It's just a random thought. You know what I mean? That's how I write. And, um, and they were like, well, you're doing a disservice to all the people that hear your inspirational story because a, a week from now, when they want to remember what you said to them, or they want to remember what you went through, this book will actually just give them a reference to go back and read. 
And so like, you know, you're not a number one best-selling author. Don't get carried away. Just write the book for the people that can't remember everything. And so I said, okay, you know what, for that, I'll do it. Right. Cause, and, and I did. And, and that's why I can pay. Uh, you know, I'm excited. I have another book coming out in the next year. Gives me what I didn't deserve. And, and that kind of chronicles about like the last three or four years of my life and, and all just the, I mean, the amazing things I get to do. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I'll share one more quick story, but just because you guys will love this one. But so when I was telling you about that morning routine that I had, right. And, and that desperation I had in Las Vegas, well, the turning point for that was that, uh, February 7th, 2010, my football team, the New Orleans Saints were in the Super Bowl. And, uh, and that day I was drug sick, alcohol sick. I was out of money. And, and I, I gave a prayer up. Like this is before I got really spiritual, obviously. And I said, God, if you're still up there, here's the deal. You let the Saints win the Super Bowl and I'll turn my life around, get sober and go back and be a good person. And if not, today's the end of my life. I'm just, I'm going to finally do oh, it. No. And, and lo and behold, like 40 minutes later, the Saints won the Super Bowl and I was terrified. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> like he came through on his team. What am I going to do? <laughs> And, um, <laughs> you know, cause I didn't think he was, I didn't really think he was going to come through. I was kind of like, just saying it like angry little alcoholic punk rock kid. Like, you know what, God, let my team win and I'll turn my life around. I'm out of here. Well, and, um, tell God your plan and he you know, laughs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, but the, uh, but the cool part about that was that was, you know, 11 years ago. And, uh, and obviously, you know, I got sober and here I am today and, and doing all this great stuff. And, um, and that was really kind of like the turning point. But also this year uh, was the first year I became the official uh, Santa Claus. So I'm actually the New Orleans Saints Santa Claus. Hey. And so I got to spend a month down. In, yeah, I got to spend a full month down in New Orleans this year during the holidays. I got this full, like, gold Santa outfit that has all the, you know, like, fleur de lay on it and everything. And I got to go around. I took thousands of pictures of all these kids and I got to be in like a Hallmark thing, Hallmark Christmas oh, thing. You know, it's all these like. Cool, and, uh, man. That's what I want to share. You guys listening, man, like that is possible for you. Like you guys heard my story, right? Like I ended with that. So like this wasn't like, you know where I came from, right? So it wasn't like that wasn't supposed to happen, right? That's what I like to call a miracle, right? That's an act of God. That's a God mm -hmm. shot, right? Something that nobody right. saw that happen, right? And it's funny, like, how did you get this job? And I'm like, I don't have the heart to tell them. I mean, I'm like, oh, I just got to fill out an application. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't want to be telling kids that story. Wow, I was drug sick in Las Vegas 10 years ago, and I made a deal with God. That's how I, I got it. here. You know what I mean? Like that's, I love it. Uh, Chris, absolutely. Anyway. What, uh, Danny said counts double for me. I mean, you've had this storied life, and I'm making it sound like the, the premise of a Hollywood script. I'm not. Um, <laughs> well done. Well done on highlighting a lot of things from experience, you know, and uh, I'm definitely going to get your book because, you know, I've been affected by what you've mentioned and Danny's been affected by what you've mentioned. And if there's one thing that we would like to ask is keep fighting the good fight. And you've given me especially uh, a lot of food for thought that it's not about me or Danny or Chris Stewart. It's about those out there who are still suffering. God bless you. Nothing but the best for 2022, son. Thank you so much. And like I said, if you guys, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can follow me on Instagram at the number one uh, hope dealer. Um, that's my Instagram. Or uh, I have a website too you can check out. It's just one word, chrisstewartworldwide.com. 
Um, and if you uh, want to get a hold of me through any of those, I also have a show on Facebook. Um, it's under Chris Stewart. It's called Spiritual Gangster Monday. And it's like a 15-minute motivational talk that I do every week from 12.30 p.m. till about 12.45. But it's always on there. So um, you should be able to find me. I think uh, my picture, uh, it just has yeah, my face picture on there or whatever. Um, Chris Stewart San Diego, maybe you could find it. Uh, actually, it's uh, Facebook forward slash and then Rock an Amazing Life. And what's the book? For the Facebook. What's the name of your book? I've got it here. Prayers uh, for Rock and Pastry. Called- from a hopeless dope yep. fiend to a dopeless hope fiend. For our listeners, if you hop on Amazon, you can get the Kindle version for a mere five bob. Kindle version is obviously the most convenient. Yep. The paperback is 15 yep. bucks on the dot. Uh, do yourself a favor. There's a lovely cover where uh, on his back he's got a tattoo that said, Sold My Soul. Again, the book is Chris Stewart, Prayers, Punk Rock and Pastry from a Hopeless Dope Fiend to a Dopeless Hope Fiend. Chris Stewart, you're Thank a you so mensch much. and more, son. Thank you so much, you man. So it's been, my, it's been an honor for me to be on the show. Thank you all so much. Anything I can ever do to help you or your community, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks. We're going to have you back. Created live on Fireside.